Industry Pods and Evergreen Podcast Network are pleased to present the following podcast. This content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial or other advice. Nothing contained on here constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement or offer by Draper Gorenholm or any third-party service provider to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments whatsoever. What's going on, Blockchain and Booze Nation? Welcome to session 56. Yeah, 56 weeks into quarantine, 56 weeks of Blockchain and Booze. What started as a fun Zoom call has now led to this awesome meetup. So if you're new, uh, go join the, the conversation live at meet.blockchainbooze.io. Over there, you're going to find a ton of people uh, that are drinking, having a good time, live chatting, and just carrying on a discussion in the background while they're watching us live. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Levy. I'm the ops manager at Draper Gornholm and the host of Blockchain and Booze. And I'm so stoked for our conversation today. I have three uh, DeFi uh, legends, each working on amazing projects and really cool stuff that I'm excited to bring on in just a minute. Uh, but before I bring him on, a quick plug about Draper Gornholm. We're an early stage investment company. We have our studio where we incubate and accelerate early stage startups and then double down on them with our fund. And we host uh, the best events in crypto, actually producing over 100 in 2021 alone from LA Blockchain Summit, Global DeFi Summit, the NFT Summit. We just had the Security Token Summit. We have Alon Gorns, What the Block, and our very own Blockchain and Boost. So let's get to it. Let me bring up our guest speakers. Uh, we have Don Ho, Luke Weber. And Santiago, guys, what's going on? Welcome to Blockchain and Booze. How are we feeling? It's good, good. Thanks for having us. I I need some energy. Yeah, we're we're on Blockchain and Booze. I'm it's, happy. it's it's five p.m. somewhere. People are drinking. We 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 got to get some good energy on stage. So uh, our topic for today is all about DeFi uh, rating systems. Basically, what goes into determining a quality DeFi project, okay? And what better way to discuss that with each of you? So really quick, go ahead and give a, a brief intro on yourselves, uh, what you're drinking and who you are, okay? Let's do it. Uh, we can start with Luke and then work our way to Santiago and then end with Don. Nice. So I'm Luke. I'm drinking coffee because it's 2 a.m. here in Amsterdam and I'm extremely tired, but <laughs> also excited. Um been involved in the space for about five years now. Originally come from the Caribbean, from Curacao. Um, have a background in philosophy and business. Eventually the two things met kind of in the in the Web3 space. Um, kind of found my way mainly through DAOs, um, through the Genesis DAO of, of DAOstack. And now most recently I'm managing a DeFi fund at Iconic, a Amsterdam-based firm. And I'm doing a bunch of stuff for PrimeDAO, which is a DeFi coordination hub mainly focused on DAO-to-DAO -DAO services and products. And besides that, we're running a regenerative economy design in the Caribbean, uh, which is kind of a passion project, but also really important. Luke, welcome. It's your first time on Blockchain and Booze. Uh, full disclosure, PrimeDAO is a portfolio company at Draper going home. So just to throw that out there, cheers. Welcome uh, welcome to Blockchain and <laughs> Booze. Santiago, yeah. go ahead. Hey, everyone. Uh, can you hear me right? Okay, great. Yeah, so Santiago, uh, I'm a partner at Parify Capital. Uh, we are a DeFi-focused fund. Uh, that is all we do. That's what we love. Uh, and so this panel should be fun and exciting. Uh, and uh, uh, I, 
I'm uh, drinking sparkling water. So, so uh, a mysterious substance. Infused sparkling water. You just can't. <laughs> where where, where <laughs> yeah, are you based, Santiago? Shady uh, bottle. So so I'm originally from Mexico, so I came down here to spend a little bit of time with uh, uh, friends and family I hadn't seen in a while. But typically, nice. so Parify, we're based in San Francisco and New York. Uh, but we really invest globally. So I don't know where I am these days other than like my parents, literally I'm in my parents, ba I kid you not, I'm in my parents' basement. And so uh, very typical of, uh, uh, I guess, uh, an internet frog uh, that we are sometimes. Nice. Cheers. Welcome to Blockchain and Cheers, Booze. Guys. And Don Ho from Quantstamp. Give us, give us the brief. Hey, everyone. I'm Don Ho, Managing Director at Quantstamp. We are the leader in blockchain auditing. So all of those different DeFi protocols and liquidity pools you're aping in on, we are making sure it remains safe. Um, I'm also a senior venture partner at a YC alumni fund called Pioneer and super excited uh, to talk more about projects and how to evaluate them today. Amazing. Guys, we have a, we have a killer lineup. Uh, Parify Capital is legendary. Quantstamp is legendary. PrimeDAO just launched a DeFi rating project uh, that's legendary. You're on its way to become legendary and hence why you're all here today. Uh, you're all legends in your own respect and I I'm excited to, to pick your brains. Uh, so again, today's topic is all about evaluating DeFi projects and really determining what metrics uh, are used to better understand a project's potential. Uh, and I think we can take this discussion, we can focus strictly on DeFi but I'd also like to, to bridge out to what's happening in crypto right now. Uh, it's 420 Doge Day, apparently, right? That's That's been picking up a lot of traction. Uh, and you're seeing Dogecoin, you're seeing SafeMoon and other, other like social viral tokens pick up traction that I don't necessarily believe will, uh, will kind of align with the metrics and fundamentals that are used to determine uh, quality projects. But I'll let you guys kind of determine that. So... I, I want to start with my, my first question to you guys. Uh, share with me some of these big macro trends that institutional and retail investors are betting on for DeFi. And the reason I bring this up is because there's various problems in the world that DeFi aims to solve. So what are those like big macro trends that you guys see respectfully that, that DeFi aims to tackle? And anybody can jump in here, uh, whoever would like to start. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I like. I got asked this question earlier today. Like, why is Dogecoin Dogecoin important? Um, and I'm not like I'm not dismissive of that like social phenomenon. You know, at the end of the day, there was a time where Bitcoin like started like that, right? Uh, where it didn't have much fundamentals. That was an idea. And you look at their super early like our Bitcoin threads, and it's hard to go back and like they're instructive because you know no one knew that it was going to be. I mean. In a, in a probability weighted scenario, it was like really low that it would become a trillion plus asset class. And, uh, you know, I think it's evolved into so much. I'm not suggesting that Dogecoin can actually become that, right? Um, but what is interesting, though, is the, the, the common underlying reasons why these things come to being is I think there's a lot of, um, especially among the younger generations, there's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of like feelings of disenfranchisement, sort of this Wall Street bet movement. Uh, I think these are all things that have, in a COVID environment have accelerated. Like, and so, uh, you know, it's part of, I would characterize it, it's part of a bigger phenomenon around, hey, look, I mean, th there is a need and the desire to change the status quo, especially among younger generations. Now, of course, DeFi is much more interesting because there's underlying tech, there's fundamental value traction. 
um, to disrupt traditional financial services that not for the sake of disrupting it, but simply uh, you take what is useful in Bitcoin and then you apply it into a more generalized context of let's actually make finance catch up to the internet because the internet never solved moving money the same way that you move information. Okay, fair. Anybody want to add to that? Either Don or Luke, these big micro trends that are happening in the world that, that DeFi is kind of aiming to solve or plugging its way into. Yeah, I think I would echo what Santiago is saying. Coming from a Caribbean island and being quite young myself, I have experienced the need or or kind of the, the inability to own stuff. And with Web3, when I first um, kind of understood what it could create um, and seeing it emerge now in DeFi and giving ownership to a generation that generally can't afford to own stuff, buying a house, especially now that I'm living in the Netherlands, I would never be able to buy a house if I would follow the traditional financial system and really bringing back ownership to a generation that has felt powerless and has a big desire to change things and to participate in this digital economy. I think it's really powerful to see that um, investing is becoming a thing that everyone wants to do and that everyone should be able to do and really lowering the barrier for participation. I think DeFi is really changing um, the future of a whole generation and, and yeah, the future of society. Yeah, I'd like to follow up on that too, just where, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about maybe on a more global macro perspective is like for millennials and for sure um, Gen Z, this is the first time ever you've seen the world essentially on a few very, very common shared platforms. And, you know, when, when you, you have that sort of phenomenon of, of like, let's call it web one, web two of Facebook or MySpace or Instagram, right? Um, that's when you really get sort of the network effects of direct to consumer far greater than we've ever, ever seen. And I think that really ties into, you know, some of this larger memeability of certain concepts or community, you know, and I think Doge in a way is one manifestation of what community looks like. Um, but I think a greater macro trend and, you know, to bring it to DeFi, one thing that I find very interesting is sort of like the evolution of software is eating the world. Um, that Mark Andreessen, you know, families famously put, I think we're starting to see a 2.0 version of that where it's software eating money. And that's kind of my framework of what decentralized finance is. Um, and so when you have software eating money, the why now for DeFi makes way more sense because you finally have finance sort of moving at the speed of software um, and the iteration is far greater, right? And one great example is, you know, you finally have solidity engineers and computer science people learning what finance is and just encoding it. And the cool thing about software is it's an infinite design space. Um, and so when you have it be infinite and almost borderless, um, you're gonna see a lot more greater innovation than you saw prior when it was pre-software. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And I think obviously we, we saw this kind of come in, in, in context this past summer when DeFi uh, had its had its moment, right? And I'm on DeFi Pulse right now, just looking at the total value locked uh, in DeFi, currently standing at $56.83 billion, which a year ago today, that was $776 million. So what do you guys think has changed since uh, since then that has caused DeFi to, to pick up steam? Uh, like, And I guess the, the more general question is, what is the current state of DeFi? Uh, 
Go ahead. Any anyone, feel free. I'm tempted to say yield farming <laughs> in the sense that turning blockchain assets into capital assets really is a game changer and having protocols that actually create value and some of them capture it as well. Um, at least from how we look at tokenomics and tokens has really changed our view where before there was no tangible value. And now we are seeing this tangible value. If it's completely justifiable through just governance tokens, I'm not sure. Um, but it does really turn this into a functional ecosystem opposed to a speculative dream that we want to achieve. And I think um, the first reaction that I get from both retail and institutional investors when they realize the capabilities that are already here today um, through things like MM markets, um, DAO governance, it really um, opens up this whole kind of design space that they find interesting, which before was a lot of speculation only. And I think that is driving a lot of the, at least that drove from my perspective, this kind of first DeFi wave. Now, I think the second one is pure greed. It's um, just with NFTs, it's like, there's this new innovation, some group catches up to it. And then there's this next group that just wants to, without kind of going into it, just monetize on it. And I think if you open, for example, DeFi Llama, you'll see that the total value locked there is 100 billion right now. And that's because I think about 15 billion is sitting on Binance Smart Chain doing um, copy paste yield farms um, with their own merits providing kind of that that space for those individuals or those those institutions that want to participate in kind of the yield farming only game. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Santiago. Go ahead, Adam. Uh, go for it. Go. No, I was going to say like when you're, when you're pitching Parify to institutional investors, family offices, uh, and even retail investors, like when people ask you, what is the current state of DeFi and how that's evolved over the last few months since that pinnacle moment during the summer? Like what, what what's your takeaway from that? What do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I think there is certainly a lot of noise uh, in any industry, you know, the internet, biotech, like you look at any industry, there's going to be speculation. That That's something that is not inherent to crypto. Now, of course, like you program money, and you gamify it, and you introduce the ability to like, you know, combine like game type components of incentives, like compounded or synthetics early on. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna drive behavior. Uh, and you have for the first time ever, like global untethered pools of capital, like, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of energy moving. Um, so like, uh, I wouldn't be like, dismissive. like, certainly like we all know, like, you know, speculation and these yield opportunities onboard a lot of new users. Um, like look at what's going on in pancake swap, for instance, uh, I'm not like dismissive of that, but I think like a fundamental piece or my fundamental thesis is largely unchanged. Like we are still very, very early. Um, but I think when I going back to what uh, Don was saying, this ability of like, I think the two really interesting like components of this ecosystem are composability and open source. Like when you have an open source system, the compounding effects of innovation, you're, you're going to incrementally like have faster rate of innovation to a point where you're never like traditional finance is just never going to be able to compete. Um, you know, every incremental developer on boards, every project that comes into this and builds another Lego is not is not adding, you know, one plus one is two. I think there's just more synergies, which leads me to my second point of composability, right? The system, like you can have new components that are just not possible in traditional finance, like flash loans, for instance, or the integration that you see between like different 
DeFi primitives and protocols is not only getting more efficiency, but it allows you to do things that you can't do in traditional finance. So like, why is, for instance, just concretely, why, why is a flash loan interesting or important? Uh, people might say, well, flash loans are bad because they use exploit things. Well, hold on a minute. Like it creates a much more resilient quasi anti-fragile system because any inefficiency is quickly arbed out. So this very kind of adversarial environment builds a much more robust system. So in a way, like we go through these periods of stress tests, um, you know, look what happened to Maker uh, in last March. You had like thousands of simultaneous liquidations. The value of collateral goes fifty percent at three in the morning when most market participants were asleep. And what did that happen? The protocol worked as intended. Now, of course, there were problems with the keeper ecosystem and some things that we were aware of. But like by and large, the system works as intended. There's no bailout. There's no. I mean, there was a very small shortfall in the grand scheme of things. And that's like what I try to emphasize to people. It's like these protocols, like the programmability of money is just, I, I think we're barely scratching the surface of what you can do with if then logic. It's transparent. It doesn't discriminate. It serves as intended. And, you know, I think the ability, like from a developer standpoint, the certainty that that gives you to build on top of these primitives is very powerful. From a consumer standpoint, it's very transparent. You know what you're doing, right? There's no, there's no like shadiness. There's no like hidden fees. Like everything pretty much is there from a regulatory standpoint, it's open and transparent. And so a lot of these kind of converge on elements. Uh, but of course I'd be remiss not to acknowledge that speculation is a big part of any innovation, any industry that is like very, very early. So why yeah. wouldn't it answer? Yeah. <laughs> No, no, I, I think there's there's a bunch of like awesome nuggets in there, but I, I'd love to hear from Don, your, your point of view and how Quantstamp kind of used that. Uh, like what is the current state of DeFi from your perspective? You guys are one of the largest auditors in the marketplace, right? And how has that point of view kind of evolved over the last few months since this sporadic movement during the summer? Yeah, look, would love to double click on what Santiago said, which is when you open source everything, it's, it's peer competition. Right. But when you have peer competition, you are having this rate of innovation you never see prior. And so even from our perspective as auditors that look at code to make sure, you know, there aren't vulnerabilities that lock your money into a smart contract or have someone take money outside of a smart contract. And what we see is that um, the level of security has increased dramatically as well, largely because of large projects that have 5 billion, 10 billion plus in TVL, they have set the standard on the documentation you need, the unit tests you need. Um, and sort of now that, you know, again, everything's open source. Now that you see people just forking things and just adding their own little bit of it, that's, in my opinion, the best way to be coding, right? Why do we need to create 10 different instances of Uniswap when if we find the one perfect one, everyone just, just fork off that and continually improve upon, right? Again, this compounding magic to it. And so from the purpose of like even 2017, 2018, the code quality then to what we have now, number one, the complexity is way higher, right? But number two, it's like the documentation and the best practices are there. And, you know, I got, we have to think, not only us, but trail a bit, consensus diligence, and always all of us making sure there is proper documentation. I tie all that back in, though, as a quick nugget of when I think about even investing in startups, how you evaluate these sorts of things. I think 
the code is going to matter a lot more going forward as opposed to even what we see in traditional venture capital investing, which is thinking about the business model as opposed to uh, the code or the repository itself. I think those are all three valid points. And just moving the conversation forward, I want to dive into the like more of the fundamental analysis that each of you use uh, to determine the viability of a project or the potential of a product. Okay, so let's let's quickly chat about like the different types of quantitative and qualitative analysis uh, that you that you guys look at to determine an asset's worth. Okay, so where is a good place to start? Do you do you start uh, when when a company, I guess, pitches you, right, uh, Santiago, when it, when they're looking seeking investment, or uh, Don, you can take this from the point of view when companies come to you guys to be audited, or Luke, you can take this from the point of view of when you're building this DeFi rating product, like what goes into determining that process. What do you what do each of you look at? Do you look at first, obviously, the white paper, the deck? Do you, do you do a quick market share analysis? Do you look at the team? Like what goes into that fundamental stage uh, of breaking that process down? And we can start with Luke uh, because you guys just came out with this with this new product, right? So take me more through that. Yeah, definitely. So we have been working on prime rating that's in kind of open beta now. So what we do with prime rating, we work together with DeFi Safety who already have a smart contract score. And we added to that a fundamental analysis report and a data report. Now, honestly, we're still struggling with the data reports because the initial reports were just way too complicated for anyone to be able to replicate it. And that's an important part of how we're approaching it because we want to turn this rating framework itself into a permissionless protocol. So it needs to be something that evaluates um, correctly, but also something that could be easily replicated by someone that isn't kind of part of this core group. So in our case, we try to not go way too deep and everything needs to be based on public information. So for the specific fundamental reports, we have kind of five subcategories that that raters are supposed to look at, starting with kind of the value proposition, the market share, kind of the outlook of, the, of that section of the market, um, getting into the tokenomic design, um, kind of the extent of the token, what can you actually do with it? Is it actually used for things? Does it have a revenue share and what so? Um, looking at the team itself, who are the people, are they... Anons, are they public? If they're if they're anons, do they have a track record? Kind of how can you evaluate if these people are able to coordinate effectively? Um, looking at the governance, um, admin keys, basic things, kind of how is it governed? Um, I'm a big DAO fan myself. I've been doing DAO stuff for, for a couple of years. So looking at the actual governance infrastructure, governance frameworks, what are they using? Do they have a robust, robust process? And then also we look at the regulatory environment, kind of does this company have a legal entity? Does it actually connect to what they're doing? Do they need a legal entity? Um, and then that, that's kind of all combined into a score. And then by combining the fundamental score with the data score and the um, smart contract score, we then get to a rating from A plus to D. Um, and that's kind of how we do it. Fair. Santiago, how do you guys approach it? Because you guys are very analytical. You, I feel like you, you have some form of process or framework that you guys use uh, to, to, to like determine the viability of some sort, right? Maybe I'm, I'm overstretching it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, there's so many attribution and luck in, in this business and distributing luck and skill is difficult, but generally, yeah, we, we have frameworks in place. Uh, the key things that we look at, um, are, you know, is this an incremental improvement or is this just a function improvement? Um, and, and it really like starts with the team candidly. I mean, cause Don, you brought up a good point, which is, 
you know, this industry is very competitive and adversarial. And so at the end of the day, like best builders, I think are the ones that like, just can, you know, th there's a system like in Jeffrey West talks about like scalability and how systems grow at the end of the day, these are like organisms that keep growing in order for a protocol, I think to be successful. And like, you know, you need to increase your rate of growth in order to stay relevant in this industry, I think. Like certain protocols have ossified, like Maker has a true moat, I think now. Wi-Fi, you could argue, has a moat. Certain protocols have gone to the point where they are because of, of, of the team, candidly, and the community. Uh, but tangibly, like quantitatively, if a project is live, assume like it's not like super early because we like to, you know, invest in like all stages. But like say a protocol is live, you know, I, I think you you look at the the value accrual uh, and, and how how the system works, right? What are the unit economics? Like, you know, for example, think of like a, an exchange, an AMM, for instance, well, you look at the volume and then you say, okay, well, it's charging 30 basis points of which, you know, 30 basis points goes to, uh, gets distributed in X or Y, five basis points might go to token holders, the rest might go to the protocol. And then you, and then you like, but you zoom out and say, okay, well, what is the sustainability? Like for every incremental dollar that comes into DeFi, you'll ultimately wonder where are they gonna trade? And what, like, how is this order going to be routed through the system? Well, it's going to be routed probably through an aggregator. Uh, and then you say, okay, well, who has the deepest pools of liquidity and how do you get there? Right. And, and liquidity is a transient mode. So how do you actually retain liquidity? And where I tend to focus a lot of my energy is focusing on like unity, like, like, like in token design and incentives. Um, I think a lot, probably most tokens out there are like very suboptimal, uh, in terms of like the token design and incentives like i i understand like this the system's like very challenging i think because um the community will always demand respective loops around like uh, yield farming you know it's certainly a good way to like bootstrap these networks like you, you see some like yam yeah, go from zero to 700 million uh in tvl in 22 hours i mean it's pretty impressive then how do you actually retain that because i, I come from like uh like traditional software investment and I think a lot of what you saw and still see in today's world is like all these fintech companies and VC back companies like offer incentives to customers to acquire and try out a product. Think of Blue Apron and all these food delivery startups like or ride sharing startups. Like they offer incentives for you to like try the product. But I don't think a lot of protocols are thinking about how am I retaining this customer and loyalty. Um, hmm. And, you know, I guess the best design system that I've seen is like, okay, synthetics, for instance, if you're using synthetics, then yeah, you're earning us an extra reward, but they're locked for a year. So the question becomes, are you, do you want to attract a million users and X liquidity? Um, or do you want to attract like a hundred core core users that over time are going to build a good product? Because you know, my view is just that no amount of financial engineering solves for a crappy product. I mean, there's a re like, look at Uniswap, right? Uniswap mm -hmm. was, you could argue if it was first or second to think of like, I would propose the idea of an AMM and then a few projects, Bancor and Uniswap and a few others, like took that design and then iterated and built it in its own way and right. And, um, you know, Uniswap just became the number one DeFi app. It still is. I mean, it has 60,000 users, active users on a 24 hour basis. And for a long time, it didn't have a. I think, I think, yeah. I, I think it, it kind of depends think, on the protocol. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Don? What, what do you guys kind of use at Quantstamp? I know you, you guys take a very more intricate analytical approach because you guys are actually auditing code, right? You, you guys are in the, the meat and potatoes of every project. Uh, so what does that kind of look like from your perspective? What's that process like? Yeah, look, we operate a lot like a venture fund, right? Like what we audit 
uh, enables whatever that primitive that thing is trying to launch on. And in a way, you know, when we first started, we thought, okay, is QuantSim sort of like the VeriSign of the blockchain or Moody's? But I think it goes way more into it, right? And I think that when we look at what projects do we want to audit, we do look at a lot of the same metrics I've already been talked about, whether it's community or the token design. But for us, ultimately here, code is God, <laughs> right? Because the hope here is that the protocol remains and we all perish. So at the end of the day, it's really the code that, yes, it can be upgraded and improved upon through governance road. Uh, but like, it's all about, is it like, how good is the code? And for us, um, you know, we've never before seen another sort of um, project or startup where you rely so heavily on the code as opposed to uh, a founder or whatever. I'm not saying, you know, they're mutually exclusive, but I think for us, we get really analytical on looking at, you know, uh, gas utility of some of these uh, uh, projects as it relates to retention. Right. And we think about what are those positive feedback loops or that's through the interface. Um, again, we always look at the documentation. How well does the dev or the project lead understand what it does, but more specifically what it does not do. Right. I think very often um, in startup investing and project investing, entrepreneurs are really just trying to sell you this dream of whatever you believe and want to see. Some of the best projects we've seen actually are very, very, very focused and understand exactly what they are and what they are not, right? And when you look at code, that's how you really call BS or not. Um, in addition to that, again, we talk about unit tests, end-to-end -end tests. These are sorts of things where, again, maybe in a Web2 startup, you could get away with a very charismatic founder, right? Here, code is still a god. I wouldn't, uh, I would be remiss if I said, though, it did not matter about the team to Santiago's point, to Luke's point, which is, you know, when I do a lot of investing in Y Combinator startups or I help determine what companies get into Y Combinator, there are three qualitative things that I think are really, really valuable. Um, the first one, um, I think, is really, for me, what is that unique insight the project lead or that project has that nobody else knows? Right, because that really a lot of the times will direct the go to market and the right way to launch something. And again, especially within crypto, as much I mean, I'm totally doubting myself, but as much as the code matters, a lot of it's also workable. So having a founder's unique insight about the problem and how maybe people could use it is number one. The second I always think about is, is there an unfair advantage to the team? Have they been a securities lawyer? Have they worked at a high frequency trading firm? Are they themselves auditors, right? What is the unfair advantage that allows them to sprint quicker? And I say the sprint quicker part again, because someone can easily do a vampire attack on you. And so speed here is also key. So determining what the velocity you imagine that team will be based on maybe a proxy of what they've done previously or how they've shown how quick they iterate I think that's another really important thing. Um, but you know, other than that, I, I do think uh, make sure whatever you do invest in either has an auditor lined up or has been thinking about it. Fair. Uh, I, I want to kind of pick your brain, Santiago, for a minute because you brought up a really interesting point. Do, you, do projects focus more 
on a few users that bring the majority of the value or a lot of users that bring a little bit of value, right? At, at Parify, how do you guys view that? Like, what is that, what is that formula? Is it very project dependent? Um, because the way I think about it, it's a DeFi project, okay? And you need a lot of users uh, to, to I, I mean, I, I, I'd assume that projects would want a lot of users uh, to benefit from their solutions in order for it to be deemed successful. Like, how do you guys kind of view that? Yeah, um, I'll speak on my behalf. None of this, I guess, is my advice. But yeah, like, uh, you don't necessarily have to have a lot of users. I mean, we're all kind of beta testers in this system. Like, I, I don't think like, I think these protocols are being built to iterate to a to an end state where like you can have millions and billions of users. Now, um, there could be a scenario where some protocols just have very little users, but a lot of value being transacted. Uh, it just depends on kind of what layer of the stack, right? If you're investing in like core DeFi layer one core protocols, you almost think that like invariably like they're gonna have less users because at the end of the day, most of the users in DeFi may come from aggregators that might not even know which protocol they're interacting with. They're, the the order is just going to be executed in the most efficient way possible and so then you wonder okay what's going to determine the the efficiency of these protocols like so for instance like a generalized like synthetics platform well you have synthetics and mirror and a few others like there are different design trade-offs there uh and so at that point becomes less of you know it's more like can it support all these different derivative products and can it support all this liquidity and how scalable is it um, and I think certain things obviously have been challenging in, in Ethereum, just given gas fees and the friction associated with that. But if you look past that, you say, okay, well, in an L2 environment or in a scenario where this is not, no longer, some of these friction points are no longer, is there actual like underlying demand for this product? Um, like, yeah. because I, I would say like, I don't know, like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like we're so early in this state, like in this, in the evolution of this, this industry that, um, Historically, like I haven't made a ton of investments at the user aggregation layer. I just think that it's so early that I'd rather invest in like core primitives that over time are going to power an entire ecosystem. Um, so, yeah, does that answer the no, question? Yeah, yeah, that no, that makes sense. Uh, and I guess a, a follow-on question to all you guys. Um, and I guess Don, you you kind of you're talking about if founders have an advantage, right? If they know something that other people don't know. Uh, and I guess from from my point of view and from each of your own point of view, uh, information is public, right? It's just how fast someone gets that information or what what sort of advantages do they have in their favor to get that information first. Uh, are there any tools or resources that each of you use when it comes to determining uh, a, a quality project? And I'll give you an example, uh, testing the health of a community using Lunar Crush, understanding um, uh DeFi revenue, right? Through doing analytic dashboards, right? Like these these types of products that are, are trying to make uh, this industry more transparent and, and bring more clarity to it. Do you guys use any of these tools or resources or softwares to to create more clarity for yourselves when, when doing this analysis? Or is this one of those like things that you don't reveal because that's like the secret sauce <laughs> in your in your uh, in your uh, uh, your advantage? No, no. A lot of I Discord mean, we, and Telegram yeah, I mean, groups. Like, this is this is interesting. I think there, I think there's a little bit of a lag. So feel free, Luke, and then Santiago jump in. Yeah. So so for me, it's 
we have a. I use a couple of tools, of course, things like Nansen and and Whatso to get kind of the bigger picture. But then I also like to go deep, just join the Discord, have a conversation with people, and I think also what for me works as a good tool is having a bunch of people with different perspectives in your network and just showing it to them and looking at their reactions mm. and getting their pers- perceptions on certain things because maybe I'm not the best smart contract dev or I'm not the best token engineer, uh, but people that I know are and then showing it to them and looking at their reaction um, and reflecting them based on that kind of how they reacted and how that kind of relates to my own thesis. Yeah, that sounds very like, um, what's the word? Uh very like bare bones type of analysis. Like it's just very multi-step discord, telegram, talk to friends kind of thing. Okay. Fair. Santiago, what were you starting to say? Yeah. I'll say I'll, I'll, like Nansen, uh, doing analytics, uh, uh, emails from a just transaction flow standpoint, like, uh, just looking up to me, I, I all day long, I'm just looking at like the flows of between different protocols. I just find that fascinating, that constant stream. Um, so, so those are the analytical tools. Um, what else? I think I'm missing one. It's Dune, uh, and then there's like Dex Guru and a bunch of others that like you're able to see using protocols. A lot of these protocols have their own dashboards built, um, like using the graph and stuff like that. Um, and then, yeah, like to to Luke's point, like a, a lot of really interesting discussions are happening in Discord. Okay, um, and it's kind of fascinating. Like in traditional like markets, like you get you have very little access to like executive teams and management teams. Right. But in, in, like I'm shocked that sometimes these, these communities do dev AMAs like every week and there's six people showing up on YouTube. I look at that and I get excited. I'm like, how is it that like for as long as we talk so much about price and there's all discussion and speculation and people drawing lines on charts and stuff like that. I'm like, just honestly take 30 minutes of your time and ask these devs questions. That just shows you that that just, I was going to say that just shows you how much people rely on other people's opinion to make their investment decision rather than going through the hard work, quote unquote, themselves and joining those AMM groups, uh, joining those discord channels and whatnot. That's 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 shocking. But I also think, Santiago, that's also a sign of that's how early this stuff is. And that's how non-crypto native a lot of people are to some extent, uh, because. Like you don't see that, like you said, from traditional finance companies, you don't see really AMAs, I think. The, the most recent uh, AMA that our AMA style thing that I saw from a more traditional financial company is Robin Hood and, and Vlad, like doing his own podcast now and being more of a voice, a direct voice of the community. Um, and I, I think you, you were going to add something else before I cut you off. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the more exciting things about this industry is like the direct access that you have to these teams. Anyone really can jump on a Discord and ask these questions and you have all the entire repository, either in GitHub, I mean, you look at GitHub a lot too just commits and like the development there. A, a lot of it is just really there. You just need to look, uh, but people yeah. don't like to spend the time. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> it's easier to look at charts. Yeah. Don, how about you in, in, in Quantstamp? Are there any tools, resources, uh, data aggregators, et cetera, et cetera, that you guys use either to vet a project before taking, taking it on yourself to audit um, or, I guess also from an investment perspective, when you're when you you either personally buying tokens or if Quantstamp engages in that uh, and whatnot. Yeah, look, my alpha leak was going to be GitHub commits, right, and how active these these teams and projects are. Um, but frankly, 
at Quantstamp, we sort of have an unfair advantage where we have 25 very technical people, PhDs, looking at the code and really thinking through the code of like, is this the right way to build it? And we're just really fortunate where we see so much code that we have this ability to really gauge the quality, you know, and we're, we're lucky, but like, I do think the future of investing looks a lot more technical where either you're a Parify or you're a firm, an investment firm that has technical talent that you consult with or that you have um, on deck, right? And so um, I think those are the main things I'm looking at. And I think, you know, Nansen, Dune, Zapper, Whatso, all these things are great. Um, I think the last one we look at a lot, and this is from, you know, how Quantstamp is helpful, because I think for us at Quantstamp, you know, you come for the audit, but you stay for all the sort of network effects of all the other stakeholders we work with, which is, we are very happy to intro, very similar to a venture firm or whatever, intro um, our projects to other people we've worked with, other investors. And frankly, just living by our motto, give, give, get, we just get feedback from the people we intro these people to, right? So very similar to the online conversations on Discord, uh, by just being helpful, you're gonna get feedback from your peers that you referred them to. And, you know, we, we also use that as a level of diligence. Yeah, I think, I think it's super interesting uh, for me. Uh, I'm not super technical myself. Uh, I've tried to get more technical. I've taken some courses, uh, tried to program some smart contracts. It's not in my forte, uh, per se, but, uh, the, 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 one of the, one of the most important metrics that really stand out to me is community. Uh, and obviously there is no crypto without community. Uh, and I get all my quote unquote alpha leak on Twitter, as I'm sure all everyone else in, in, in crypto gets publicly, uh, would you guys say like crypto or, I mean, excuse me, community is like one of the more valuable metrics, uh, and follow on question when you're analyzing a project's community, what do you look for? Like, how do you determine, like, I know back in 2017, people would look at telegram channels. It's like, oh, they have like 20,000 members in their, in their channel. Like, oh, they're legit. Like we should, we should ape into this, but obviously that's not, it's that not, wasn't your work back then. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. the word. Yeah. <laughs> <Moon> <laughs> or that was wasn't, thing. it was the moon. Yeah. <laughs> like what, moon. <laughs> how do you guys, how do you guys determine the, the health of a community? What, what goes into that? I think from my perspective, I'm mainly looking, I'm, I'm counting the amount of big brains. And then if there are a lot of very smart people that are having kind of deep discussions that you really see that they're committed to this and they understand kind of the, the pros and cons of things. And they're having kind of an, more of an informed debate than just a random meme chat. Um, I think that really um, makes me feel um, excited to to at least participate in the community and learn more. Um, I like scrolling through forums like MakerDAO forum and just looking at the things that people say and then to evaluate how many people are really actively putting their mind space into this. Um, and then I think also the capabilities of that project to turn these community enthusiasts or contributors into real protocol contributors, either as, as active governors or as um, ecosystem builders or community or whatever in, in whatever capacity. But um, I think there's a varying demand of kind of uh, amount of the capability of projects to actually turn the moat into contributors. And I think that's something that um, 
we should really be able to improve more in the space where there's a bunch of talent coming in from Web2. And I know many more people myself that haven't been able to contribute to something, although they're very excited about something and they're still just missing kind of this final trigger to to go part of full-time working on or helping with a protocol. That's pretty fair. Uh, either Santiago, Don, feel free to jump in. Yeah, look, again, I'll just reiterate, GitHub commits our community as <laughs> <Okay>. well, <laughs> right? It's I'm like, trying to fish. I'm non, trying to fish here. <laughs> yeah, how, like, how do non-people are committing to this repo? And if you look at even like the Linux Foundation or the Linux repo, like you have like seven core contributors, right? So I do think um, we're in a really cool state where community is in the cloud. And because it's in the cloud, it's somewhat measurable, whether it's from a technical perspective, from how often you know people are chatting the Discord. Um, and that's really cool um, because we've never been more global uh, in nature in community as well. It goes back to what I started off with was like, we have these global platforms, right? Like that was web two. Will we see in our lifetime, you know, global, finance platforms, right? Like truly like a Uniswap. And I think we will. And I think at that point, especially when you get to like the one to end sort of company building, your community is your mode, right? Like that is really Santiago's point earlier about like customer retention, like that's hand in hand in DeFi with LTV, right? And so like, I think we're gonna see, we're, I think we're really only the first or second inning of the community building to be frank. And because of that, we will see way more interactions and ways to measure community um, at an exponential pace over the next year or two even. Fair. How about you, Santiago? Yeah, I would definitely echo that. Like, I think early on, you kind of, it really starts from the core team and, and the caliber of them and just assessing like the more of like pattern recognition of, of what a good leader is. Because like really good talent attracts really good talent. And, and again, the compounding effect of that uh, I think like there are one or two or three really good engineers that then are, are are a magnet and have this sort of gravitas to then really bootstrap. I mean, Andre did that for Yarn, his capacity, Bantig is also a force of nature. And, you know, then you see like clusters of really good developers get interested in what they're tinkering and building. Um, so like, and then over time, then, then yeah, I think these things just evolve and, and then, uh, you know, the level of um, community engagement, you know, things like how did they distribute a token if there is a token, you know, how, what is the ownership there? How is this a governance heavy or minimized protocol? It's a governance heavy protocol, then how active is the community in voting? Like what's the turnout? What's the concentration of people? Um, there've been very interesting cases. So like protocols, just building interesting communities in a very short order and, and community members like really stepping up, rising to the occasion, doing proposals. Uh, in other instances where that's not been the case because it's very good there's no discussion, very few people hold these tokens and like there's nothing going on. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll go back to my first point. I think like it really just starts with really good developers. It's sort of like developers, okay. developers, developers. And, and uh, as another aside, I'll be very interested to see kind of the social graph of like governance and how that evolves. Like Yearn developed like this coordinate, uh, I think that's the name of it, of like the social graph and how people award points. And I think it's a very interesting idea of how to manage these organisms as they grow and distribute funds and like with quadratic voting in the mix, like how kind of like good does it. Um, 
but but look, I mean, as a, as a last nugget, I mean, Ethereum has grown into what is, I think, now the largest open source developer community in six years, right? It has over 2,300, 2,400 active devs. Yeah. Like that, that, again, compounding effect is super interesting. It's funny because all, all of you guys are, uh, most of you, I guess all three of you each mentioned like, and took this question from the developer perspective, from the builder perspective in terms of community. And this is where I think like an outliers is quite like relevant because you see Dogecoin, you see others that I don't want to shill. So I won't, I won't mention, but I'll just, I'll just put Dogecoin into the picture, right? Where they don't really have any, any, utility behind them right other than if if for example mark cuban starts accepting dogecoin as a form of payment for the mavericks right and more retail starts accepting dogecoin as a as a form of 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 payment right but like each of you took that question from a a technical developer perspective and i guess i was i was thinking of this more from the point of view of like how many conversations are people having around this token right or this project what that looks like in the grand scheme of things. How has that accelerated over time? What type of excitement, what kind of sentiment are people are people approaching uh, projects with, right? Do they have a cult following of some sort? Like, do you have like insane defenders online where you have the maxis of the world where, dear God, if I mention anything outside of Ethereum, the entire community is gonna completely shit on me, right? Like, it's interesting because from one point of view, crypto definitely has you need to have, without a doubt, the developer community. But I think what's even more important than that is the enablers that that take that product that developers put out into the world and create conversations around it, right? Create relevance around it, uh, create excitement, create cults behind it. Uh, so it's interesting, and I, I and I wonder how that's going to devolve uh, evolve over time. Like you said, we're we're in the first or second inning of community. So. It's interesting to hear uh, your point of view on that. Uh, I want to jump into business models really quick uh, because with every project, you gotta you gotta make some type of money at the end of the day and, and reward your your token holders, right? What are some of the more common Web three business models that you guys have seen come into effect successfully over the last few months, over the year? I, I know we don't have that much too much of a time frame to play with per se. But I guess ever since DeFi summer is like a good point on the map, like really powerful Web3 business models that have shown some viability. I can start with one. Uh, well, full yeah. disclosure, I use it. So that's why I like it. But uh, I really like Harvest Finance. Um, it's one of the first sort of, you know, uh, aggregator or DeFi aggregators. And I like the business model because we're a, um, hedge fund would typically take 30% carry or commission that gets directly just given back to folks who are holding on to their governance token. Right. And as simple as that sounds, you've never been able to do that as a peer internet corporation. Um, and you know, you think about what really kicked off DeFi, in my opinion, you really can't overwrite, you know, trans mining or yield farming like to Santiago's point of like you know sprig or doordash that was free money in a way right except this is just way more direct in a way of user acquisition and so um i do think um both having compound i think really kicked that off but two having protocols that will reward um, especially because it's DeFi, right? Where many of these uh, 
what 2.0 analogs would be the rent seekers. The rent, the rent seeking is distributed back to government token holders. So um, I think that's been one very simple, a very effective model, even amongst fierce competition of other aggregators that pop up. Somehow they still are, you know, a eco like some mainstay in the ecosystem. So um, don't understate like how simple of a hack something can be. Also, okay. How about how about you guys? What are what are the, some of the more successful Web three business models you've seen come into effect? I think from my point of view, I'm still quite skeptical on um, seeing governance tokens as a business model. I think you still need to have some value creation and value accrual to the protocol. And especially as kind of when the governance tokens dry out, then your protocol needs to, at some point, incorporate fees. I really love the Maker protocol for being quite simple in the sense kind of the product that they're offering. But that's one of the few protocols that's actually making stable money. And they have kind of a spread where they take some fee and people are okay with still, it's still the, the, the most used protocol with almost 10 billion locked in there. People like the system and the protocol itself is making fees and buying back tokens with it. And I think, um, yeah, that's just a really good model where they don't need any yield farming or governance incentives or anything. It just sits and it works and it's stable. And um, to kind of add to that, I remember um, at the start, we mentioned kind of this open source and composability we used the maker protocol, specifically DAI, in the Caribbean to create a stable coin, and it took us like two weeks. And we had a stable coin that now matched the local currency. It was more collateralized than the local currency, more than what the banks are doing. And we have this security and kind of this um, involvement of this $10 billion ecosystem, something that completely shatters people's mind when they kind of grasp the concept that we have a money that's stronger than the local money without needing any um, financial institution to give the AOK or anything because it's the primitives and the open source technology that, that does the magic. That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. Santiago, what, what have you seen more, uh, the more successful Web3 business models? Yeah, I'd say like, what are the modes, right, of these systems, which is kind of like yeah. a very challenging, but interesting question, because at the end of the day, like, as Don and Luke have alluded to, like, these are forkable things. Um, but look, I mean, I think like Don could probably speak to this more, like the Lindy effect of these protocols, it's, it's, it's huge, right? Especially something like Maker, right? I mean, the, the it's, it's very entrenched in the ecosystem as like the, the central bank of sorts. And Compton and Ave are like, more uh, like just uh, traditional banks, if you will, borrowing from Maker, and like I think it matters, right? When when you're securing billions of dollars, right? There is there is an, an there is a moat there that is is not trivial. Uh, can it be displaced? Absolutely. Uh, I think it goes back to the the level of rent seeking and these governance models. TBD. I mean, I think there is value in being able to govern over a system that you know processes a lot of this e economic activity like being able to determine certain parameters of the Aave money market is valuable. Um, how much value CBD? I, mean, I think the mistake that I've seen is, okay, well, let's take, let, let's look at traditional finance. It's massive. And assuming that there will be a one-to-one -one translation of value that's being disrupted to translate it into Web3 and DeFi is, is something that I'm not comfortable doing because there's ultimately a lot of the, the <clears throat> the stakeholder in this system that's going to benefit the most is the consumer. There's like a lot of consumer surplus that's going to be created. That doesn't mean that that will be captured by 
in the same level that perhaps folks are assuming. Sure. Uh, there are very clear direct business models like, you know, sushi swap, for instance, is very different than Uniswap, and the value capture there is, is much different. Um, one protocol is this is deciding to distribute proceeds and profits to token holders, whereas the other is retaining it to perhaps fund growth. I don't know, um, but you know, you you see these different in in the Web two world. You, you, there there is kind of like treasury management, what do you do with the, like, what do you do with profits? You reinvest them, distribute it to shoulders. Is, so ultimately, you know, um, we're, from first principle, the last thing I'll say is, I think in everything in crypto today, you, you kind of have to make the leap of faith to some capacity that any network that has a ton of demand will accrue some value. Like, you know, and, and, and so you're better off, I think, focusing on, is this like an enduring project and is this going to outlast and have, you know, uh, I think moats are at some point cease to exist, but like Don's point, protocols that do simple things, as dumb as it may seem, sometimes just have that advantage. Like if customers in, in this ever expanding complex system, you know, I think a lot of people, it's very daunting, right? And so if you just... If, if you carve out a piece in the ecosystem of like this harvest is the place to go for yield farm curve is a place to go and trade stable coins um synthetics is a place to go and trade synthetic x or y you know what i mean and so ave or compound are the places that you go and, and borrow or land and capture some yield uh and so ultimately like uh yeah you want to be the best protocols i think are synonymous with a, a particular money verb if you will uh, but it's it's still early. I, I don't know. You I can love tell that. that I'm struggling yeah. with the answer because I don't think there's a perfect business model. Sure. No, I, I love that. And that's the whole point of, of having this conversation because we are so early on. Uh, and I think when Web2 came out and Google started making money from ad revenue uh, from their search engine, a lot of people were like, what is the internet? What is Web2? How are these people making money online? Right. And that's the only reason why I asked that because we are so early on in those initial stages and it's interesting to, to hear from you guys, like what what business models you've seen work, what hasn't worked uh, and what's picking up traction, essentially, uh, as a as a connotation to the early Googles of them making money from ad revenue and people freaking out over that. Right. And, and trying to better understand how that's happening. Uh, we're, we're, we're coming up to our time. So I want to ask you guys uh, one more major question and then kind of jump to the audience uh, for a minute. Uh, so. When the World Wide Web came out, uh, nobody really expected that its next transition would be Web 2, where we have uh, all these different social networks. We have um, all these interesting business models. We have the Googles, the Facebooks, these big monsters, internet monsters of the world dominating the web. Okay, uh, And that kind of added a very nice application layer to the World Wide Web or Web web one from what i from what i call so we're in web two right now slowly transitioning into web three what do you guys think is going to be the downfall of web three and we could we could even take this from what do you think is going to be the downfall of DeFi because it's more in tune with our with our conversation but i think web three also plays in to that answer from a from a general point of view well let's assume web three dies at some point What's that? It cut out. <laughs> oh well, you're you're making the assumption that Web three at some someone gets replaced by X. 
Assuming, yes. I'm making that assumption, yeah. Because that's that's like the whole narrative online that we're going to decentralize the web, power to the people, right? This whole this whole narrative of breaking free, right? What what do you think is going to be the downfall of that? And maybe I'm taking this from a very extreme point of view. But let's let's entertain this for a minute. Let's go for the extreme. I yeah. I think the mindset of ownership uh, which I'm so excited about right now, about giving back ownership to people. Now, if you translate, like if we would move to a perfect world, um, ownership would not have to be a thing and the world would work on public goods. And I don't think we're there at all. And I think this kind of rush for user-specific and individual ownership is really good, really that, that kind of flattens the playground. But eventually... I think the greed and the want for more ownership, I mean, people are hoarders. They want more and more and more, um, especially with things like yield farming and what so. And I think that could potentially be the downfall of Web3, where it's really about um, yeah, individuals owning things, where in an ideal world, um, we would not need specific ownership and we would just need access to specific things. And then maybe we don't need DeFi tokens. Uh, we only need kind of reputation systems or something for governance, people that are able to govern public goods and we should all have kind of a base equal um, access layer. And I think in the current DeFi protocols, we have a bunch of kind of public good-ish technologies that do create a lot of value for anyone. But then there's also this kind of ownership baked into it and, and power structures. And I think those things could potentially be better in the future. Okay, fair. Anybody else? The downfall of Web3 from an extreme point of view. Don, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I can do one real quick. I mean, we almost saw it with the DAO hack, but we're always one or two big hacks away from really causing a lot of distrust in software. Um, but I don't think, knock on wood, um, that will be the only thing. I think it also is um, the re-heavy trust in the institutions. So I think like if a huge hack happened where all of the money out of the ETH2 deposit contract is drained, plus, you know, the treasury SEC or someone says, you know what, we'll pay you back in cash or like, we'll do, we'll do you a big solid. I think that could um, really do something, especially if they reimburse you in USD. That might be a huge play. That might be like, what if the US government tries to hack it and then reimburses everyone in USD? You basically just took, you know, some amount of potential, but something that could potentially be 10X from here and brought it back in USD. And, you know, if I just got hacked, am I going to bring that back in the crypto ecosystem? I don't know. I don't know. Don, I'm, I'm relying on you and your team to make sure that doesn't happen. You guys better audit the shit out of those, <laughs> those smart contracts. We audited 2.0 <laughs> twice and uh, hopefully we'll do it again. Yeah. yeah. Nice. How about, how about you, Santiago? What, what is your point of view on this? Yeah. Um, I guess the, the question is how much do people value ownership and centralization? Uh, because you lose efficiency when you decentralize things. Like, there are very few, I think, use cases where you value true decentralization. Like when you're moving billions of dollars and you have the certainty that in, in a block confirmation that moves, it matters, but it doesn't matter to everyone. So I think it's just going to resonate with billions of people. Like there is a probability where that just does not, right? People value convenience. Like there's like very few people move bank accounts in their lifetime. 
your parents open a bank account at Wells Fargo or JP Morgan, you're not gonna move it. So the question is like, does that ever, does that ever like just that consumer behavior doesn't change as much? I mean, entertaining a thought here on DeFi. That is, I mean, I don't necessarily believe it, but it's possible. Like, especially with what Don and, and Luke were saying, like if there is, if there is like you, you set back to a point where like it's almost like it takes generations to like reset this mindset because it, it is risky. It's sort of like a wild west. Um, and I mean, I guess the last thing I'll say is when I first learned about Bitcoin in 2012, like I said, hmm, very interesting. There's a version here where you, when you just intermediate money in state, this shit's not going to go down as easily. And, you know, on ramps, ultimately credit is enforced by violence in the traditional world. And, you know, this is what Luke was saying. Can you build a reputation layer uh, in a decentralized manner? Can you bring capital efficiency? Because without reputation, you're not going to have capital efficient system. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all like scenarios, but, but yeah, like, I think the, the biggest thing that I worry about is some, some knee jerk reaction from a regulator because ultimately people live in jurisdictions and, you know, they, they're, they're the fist, like we're, we're atoms meet bits. That's where the complexity is, I think, and needs to be figured out. And there's a lot of education that needs to go into stuff. So it's, it's very funny. You bring up that first point. Do people even want decentralization? Do people value ownership like that? And literally today I came across a tweet um, that basically says, this one's from at Adam Singer. Uh, and it basically says no one outside of Twitter is asking for decentralized anything. Any code that thinks this is a valuable statement to users is ultimately a niche company, or they live in a bubble isolated from how normal humans speak or think about problems. Uh, and I think I think it's super relevant to 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 your comment because what if all this shit is just living on Twitter and it's a bunch of geeks just geeking out on internet funny money and new processes? Uh, and I mean, it's always it's always a, a, a scenario to kind of to kind of play and to to think more about. But I think it's it's funny how you bring that point of view and that that came across my my, my feed today. Any anything to add to that? Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing I'll say is like, so like in like 15 years ago, people were seeing the same thing on the internet. Like they're uploading literally pictures of cats on the internet. Now we have crypto cats and or corgis and all this stuff. So like, I, I think what I'm looking for is like, what is the email moment of this industry? Because email really made the internet like pervasive. It, it touches now every industry. It required a justified CapEx. Everyone had a computer at home. Everyone had a computer at work. It just became the defective way to communicate. And you ask nine out of 10 people, no one will tell you how the internet works. They have no idea. They have no idea how a bicycle, they can't even draw a bicycle. Right, right. Um, and so at the end of the day, I think, the, I think the email moment is here. I think you saw it this year. And the optimist in me, I think stable coins are this Trojan horse, like email moment. Like they are just, look at what Lisa has done. Like, they're just faster, but deeper ways. And, and I'm not, for me, the, the most interesting tidbit, uh, I always like, like to go back to data. So like in the summer, you saw like a six, 700% increase in businesses, non-crypto, like non-crypto businesses use sales. And I think the, the key distinction is COVID really just, I think, uh, introduced like when you can't go to a physical bank or when you're Walmart or Starbucks, you, you're just, once you use a stable coin, you're not going back to a wire transfer. You know what I mean? Like yeah, it's, it's just yeah. like very, very difficult to do that. And and I think businesses are more and more, um, I think you needed a pandemic, you needed COVID to kind of accelerate that. Uh, the same with it in NFTs, like Justin Lau, who's been like thinking about NFT since 2017. The key yeah. difference now is artists are really getting hit hard in COVID. They can't connect with audiences. So 
I think I think that was a detonating moment. I think we'll look back and say, okay, stable coins, if you look at that adoption, is probably going to make DeFi much more mainstream uh, than, than what it was last year. I love it. And I'm just challenging here and there because it makes for a more interesting conversation. Uh, you guys are great. I want to bring in uh, one one comment from the audience uh, and be respectful of each of your time. And Luke, I know it's super late on your end, so you're the man for, <laughs> for staying up so late. Uh, okay, so this one comes from uh, uh, David Padula. Okay, what's your estimated timeline for larger companies to transition to DeFi? Uh, and how can startups help accelerate that process? And feel free, anybody, it could be a quick sentence or we can get into it. Take a minute. It's all good. Take a drink. Drink your booze. (laughs) I think it's already happening. I think it's already happening. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of enterprise clients um, that, you know, are doing more enterprise blockchain type stuff. But, you know, I do think... um, what Michael Saylor has sort of done in having treasury management be a part of it is such a Trojan horse, right? Because imagine Suarez, Mayor Suarez says, let's have ether as a part of our treasury as well. And they actually do it. Well, you you're probably going to stake that ether into ETH too. You now have an internet bond that's like actively kind of semi in the DeFi ecosystem. Right. And so very similar to how maybe you saw Dharma or Linen or any of these other interfaces built on top of Compound, you'll probably see some institutional or enterprise equivalent. I think that if you want to start really thinking about like, okay, how are companies, it is the balance sheet. In turn, they probably use hedge fund managers or fixed income managers. And I'm sure Santiago could speak on it too, but like we're seeing a ton of, um, traditional institutions put a very small percentage of their fixed income allocation into some of the stuff, but a very small allocation is still like billions upon billions of dollars. Right. So I think that's one way to look at it. Certainly if there's a technology aspect, you know, happy to go down that road too. Cool. Luke Santiago, feel free to jump in. Uh, I do think to some extent it's already here. Um, I also know a bunch of individuals and, and entities that are still quite scared. Um, maybe in, in the European environment, I think overall um, the organizations are a bit more risk averse. Um, here in the Netherlands, for example, the crypto regulation is quite tight and um, people still kind of follow the the lead from the DNB, which is kind of the, the Dutch central bank. Um, I think that the more... Um, I think for sure that American and and some Asian countries will be way quicker to adapt. And then at some point it will be the logical move to to participate as well. And I think from what I'm sensing here in Europe, that's still a couple of years away. Um, But I think the first start has been made really with this kind of last push with uh, really heavy hitters, things like like Elon Musk. That really drives the conversation. Also, um, we work at the stock exchange and like the traditional stock people are also that opens their eyes and they're now at least before there never was the, the, the choice to make you it was like it was always you don't put crypto on your balance sheet but now because larger entities are doing it you need to actually ask yourself the question do i want it yes or no and even by answering no you're still getting a little bit closer to saying yes cool 
Santiago, unless you have something else to add, I can move on to the final question. Uh, yeah, go for it. I was going to add something. All right. All right. Um, okay. So final question. This one comes from, uh, from YouTube, not from Remo, but so it comes from Christian team when securing, when securing decentralized internet, where does blockchain insurance fit into the picture? It's the most thing. It's what? It is. It, it probably is thematically one of the more important things that needs to happen for this industry to grow like order of magnitude. If you look at any industry in the history of time, like without bus insurance markets, they were really held back, like whaling expeditions. Like, uh, I mean, of course, audits are essential, but like insurance, like it, it mimicking products like FDIC insurance and really kind of scaling TVL in this industry, I think. Um, you know, over time, like there'd be more like standards and, and of these contracts right now you're in this kind of wild chaotic release stage phase, people are pushing the limits and, and sometimes breaking things. Um, but insurance, uh, like something like Nexus or, or risk management, like options, uh, protocols are important to, to protect your protect, uh, cause ultimately again, like it's a good question because. I would characterize like we're all beta testers. I mean, there's a reason why yield is is such, right? There's a lot of risk, even though things are audited, even though things are battle tested. You know, I think in cryptography, you and and Dot might know this like much much better than I do, but like, you never know for certain that things are never going to break. Uh, you just have asymptotic certainty over time that things are kind of secure, but there's always a risk, right? And so it, it's um, you know you should exercise your judgment and caution if things generally speaking are too good to be true i mean if things are seem too good to be true they probably are and so you should just exercise extreme caution when uh but but you know uh, there are protocols out there there are very early stage kind of insurance protocols out there that are offering some interesting solutions to protect your principal so basically short answer is that uh tbd because it has yet to be solved yes <laughs> has yet to be solved how about how about you don i see you Go ahead. I was going to oh, say, I can go. yeah, go ahead, Don. Yeah. Look, I love insurance. I think insurance is needed, but do insurance companies or projects have auditors on hand to actually assess the risk? I don't know. And like, unlike weather insurance and car insurance, you can't just base it off an actuarial model, right? So as much as you want to use statistics, I think that in a way code auditing is the closest you can get to mathematical certainty. And I think that is what makes it really fascinating to be in the insurance industry and crypto, very similar to cyber insurance and cybersecurity. The fact that you can mathematically quantify a lot more than just past outcome. That's great. I just don't think insurers or insurance projects today have any way and rather they use a market-based approach which is like me selling Beyonce concert tickets for $10. It's extremely mispriced and people are just kind of on the secondary capture that value, not the insurers. Don, are you telling me that's your side hustle? Is that, is that your side hustle <laughs> selling uh, Beyonce tickets? Uh, Look, if, if, that, if that one or two, if those one or two hacks happen, you know where to find me guys. <laughs> I love it. Don, are you, are you saying that insurance contracts are the most underpriced things in DeFi? I'm saying that when people can make 60% APY, I wonder why some people are charging two to 4%. 
I like that. Luke, go ahead. Yeah, I think oh, Santiago mentioned composability of DeFi, and I think that makes it even way more complex to do insurance because you may insure one protocol, but then I know DGENs that take three or four protocols just for one position. And then you're compounding returns, which are also compounding risk. And I think most hacks and exploits actually happen in between the protocols or like kind of utilizing one protocol's function in another protocol, which um, is, I believe, extremely hard to audit for because there's kind of this indefinite um, space of, of what protocols could look like. And I think one cool approach to this that I've seen is, is the kind of proactive approach of initially bug bounties just having just today balancer announced, I believe, a $2 million bug bounty if you find a um a extremely risky bug but then also now there's kind of this new concept of proactive insurance where it becomes kind of a public good to have a big honeypot that it's not just one or two million but could be maybe one percent of all DeFi tokens and that would hopefully um incentivize individuals that find bugs to not exploit them but take into even if it's a four or five or ten million um dollar bug bounty it's still better than a protocol like let's say maker or uniswap being drained of all the funds mm -hmm. sure yeah i know those, i think those are all valid points and again so early on so many new opportunities uh to be untapped and to be built out uh you guys have been phenomenal thank you so much for your time and for for going a little bit over cheers to you uh one last time where's your fizzy water santiago there we go <laughs> um really really quick before i let you guys go uh give me a quick plug where can we find you uh, where can we find your projects? If you're watching on Cointelegraph, I already added you guys, added, uh, whatever you guys want to call it, shouted you guys out. Uh, but for those watching on YouTube, where can we find you? Where can we learn more about what you're working on? We can start with Luke, go to Santiago and end with Don. Cool. So for me, it's Luke Dao, Luke Dao on Twitter, Prime Dao on Twitter, and also Prime Dao on Discord. I think those would be the best places. Perfect. Santiago? Yeah, crypto Twitter. So I'm at um, at Santiago R O E L. Um, you can DM me. Cool. And and Don. Yeah, go to certificates.quantstamp.com to look for the <laughs> audit reports. Uh, and you can find me at I am Don Ho on Twitter. So look, if there is any takeaway, you need insurance. If you want to invest, security is paramount. Um, and let's hope that any project you will consider. They have a great security posture. Progressive hardening is the way to go. Yes, and I, I love that. And Luke, really quick, where can we find this new product that you guys just rolled out? Yeah, so the beta is already live. You can find it at primerating.io. And also we recently launched a dehedge pool that is kind of governed by the prime rating score. So, um, and more products are being rolled out. We're working on an API uh, with um, API3 to get it also on chain and um, open it up to the world. Cool. Uh, and my favorite part of blockchain and booze is happening right now. Uh, go to meet.blockchainbooze.io. It's the networking segment of blockchain and booze where we get to take advantage of the booze in blockchain and booze. So everybody that's watching live and speakers, I know it's late on your end and afternoon on your end, wherever you're tuning in, depending on your availability, I encourage you guys to join as well because I'm sure the audience would love to pick your brains on a more intimate one-to-one -one level or group level, uh, but meet.blockchainbooze.io, meet.blockchainbooze.io there. You're going to see a bunch of people that have been watching it live through Remo, uh, the platform where we host Blockchain and Booze, and 
and you'll basically be able to turn on your microphone and your camera and interact with people from all over the world, have a drink with them, talk about the, 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 the session uh, and all that's happening with Doge Day and all the fun in crypto. Uh, so I'm going to say thank you one more time, guys. You've been awesome. And uh, we'll see you guys next week for session 57. I'm going to have Roham on from Dapper Labs and NBA Top Shop. It's going to be great. Guys, thank you. Cheers. This has been a production of Industry Pods in association with Evergreen Podcasts Network. Hear this and other industry pods at evergreenpodcasts.com, your favorite podcast app, or listen at industrypods.com for your number one virtual conference podcast experience.